Our culture loves a good mystery story. And especially when that mystery also involves treasure, like a hidden treasure, and there are clues, or there's a search, or something like that. There are famous stories like Alibaba and the 40 Thieves, or you know, the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise of like different treasures, sunken ships, who gets there first, who discovers it. If you followed in the news here in our own Rocky Mountain region, there's this famous forest fen treasure which I hadn't heard about until probably just a few years ago. But if you don't know, Forrest Fenn was kind of an eccentric art collector and antiquities dealer in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And when he was diagnosed with cancer a number of years ago, and they said it was terminal cancer, he decided to have a little bit of fun with some of his antiquities and some of his wealth. So he got this 12th century bronze box And he literally went somewhere in the Rocky Mountains and wasn't a whole lot more specific than that. And he plants this treasure somewhere. And then he writes this book entitled The Thrill of the Chase that has this poem with nine clues to the whereabouts of the treasure. And he says, whoever finds the treasure gets to keep the entire contents of the treasure. And... It's been said that over 100,000 people searched for the Forest Fen treasure. I was reading this week a little bit about it. A number of people arrested in Yellowstone and other parks for doing all kinds of illegal things that they weren't supposed to do. Um, In the last three years alone, five men have died looking for this treasure. A couple of them this past uh, spring getting stuck out way away from civilization in snowmobiles that ran out of gas and they froze to death but they're pursuing this treasure. Well, again, if you don't know, on or just before June 6th of this year, it was announced that the Forest Fen treasure had been found. And this guy that found it wanted to remain anonymous. He didn't want people to know that he found it, but Forest Fen, you know, was received some photographs with some evidence that the treasure had been found. And I just thought, you know, 2020 has kind of stunk for most of us in a lot of ways, but imagine being that guy. You know, like all these people are looking for this multi-million dollar treasure and even sacrificing their lives in some cases. And this guy finds the mystery. He unpacks the secret and he gets the treasure. And I'm starting with this illustration because this is how we tend to think of mysteries and secrets and treasures. If there's a mystery, if there's a treasure, it's like it's going to be impossible for most of us to figure it out. It's going to be impossible for most of us to benefit from the wealth that's been hidden because we're just never going to find it. And this is how the the mystery religions in the New Testament era, as we go to Colossians, there were a number of mystery religions at this time period that they would basically say something like this. We've got a secret. And our secret is the key to the good life. Or it's the key to a right relationship with God, whoever he, she, or it is. So we've talked a little bit in just the introductory background material on this book, Colossians, that this, that this philosophy called Gnosticism was just beginning to take shape. And Gnosticism, gnosis, means knowledge in the Greek language. So Gnosticism means having knowledge. And one of the core tenets of, of Gnosticism was them saying, look, you don't need theology. And you don't need tradition You don't need the teachings of the church. You need this one little special esoteric tidbit of knowledge, of gnosis. 
And if you have that gnosis, you will have a right relationship with the divine and everything will work well for you. But shh, it's a secret. So if you figure it out and you get that relationship with the divine, don't share it. Now, I want to give you a spoiler alert. Christianity actually says that to the degree that salvation is dependent on you knowing and believing something true about God, he doesn't say that's a secret that you keep to yourself. He actually says the opposite. It's good news to be proclaimed to all. So look with me at our text for this morning, beginning in Colossians chapter 1. And we'll spill over to the beginning of chapter 2. This was just a letter written to one of the early churches. And so there weren't, you know, chapter and verse divisions. It was just free flow. This is what Paul says, beginning in verse 24 of chapter 1. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, To make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which again is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Again, you can plainly see the Apostle Paul is telling the church about a mystery that leads to great riches. And again, there's this incredible contrast that he says, instead of trying to hide this secret and keep it for myself, as if it's a treasure that has a a finite number attached to it. The the Forrest Fenn treasure was estimated to be worth between two and three million dollars. The guy that found it didn't want to share that two to three million dollars. He wanted to have it. Right? But he's saying there's this inexhaustible source of riches in Jesus Christ, so you can share it with everyone. And he's saying, in contrast with something like Gnosticism, instead of hiding the mystery of Jesus, he says, here's what the mystery is, here's what it does for you, and here's what you do with it. Or to put it a little bit differently, the three points this morning will be the revelation of the mystery, the riches of the mystery, and then our response to This mystery. So, number one, this very simple, very quick, but the revelation of the mystery. And you notice two places, chapter 1, verse 27, and chapter 2, verse 2, he just comes right out and says, I've got a mystery for you. It's been hidden in the Word for a very long time, and here it is it's Christ. More specifically, it's Christ in you. And as I say that, I want you to remember that Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? And we think Jesus Christ. 
Jesus of Nazareth, that human Christ. Some of you just maybe have a fuzzy notion of what that means. Like, does that mean he's like God? Well, it's just the, it's the updated, basically, Greek version of the old Hebrew idea of the Messiah or the anointed one. And what Paul is literally saying is the mystery is that the Messiah of Israel is actually not just a like political or social deliverer of the nation of Israel or the people of the Jews. The Messiah of Israel is actually the comprehensive savior of the whole world. And both Jews and Gentiles, whoever believes in him, you get him. You get all of him for free by grace. That's what Paul is saying this mystery is. So what I love about this is that salvation is, is a, uh, it's a relationship so intimate that it can only be described as Christ in you. It's that close, that intimate, that relational Christ in you. And then he goes on to say, point two, what are the riches of this mystery then? What, what does Christ have for? If I know that the treasure is Christ, that he's the secret, he's the mystery, if I go after him, I pursue him, I seek him with all my heart, I let other stuff go, and I go after Jesus, tell me what is it that I'm going to find? And, and what are we really asking when we say, what are the riches? We're saying, is it worth it? Is it worth it? If the Forest Fen treasure was worth two to three million dollars, you know, a lot of people read about, I read about it like three years ago. We never went looking for it. Has anybody read the, the nine line poem, the nine clue poem? And I read that and I, and I think Marty was with me one time. We read it together and we were like, that could be literally anywhere in like five states, right? I mean, it's just, it's very vague in its directions. So we didn't think it was worth the risk. We didn't think it was worth the money, the wasted time. The, the, the possible loss of life. But we come back to Jesus and maybe someone even here or listening online has this question, like, is what I'm going to find in Christ, is, it, is he worth my time? Is he worth my energy? Is he worth the sacrifice maybe of relationships, of, of time invested in other things that I really enjoy? Is he worth the risk? What do I have to give up, Matt? to get these riches in Jesus. And notice again in verses two and three of chapter two, Paul basically says, I'm laboring to share this mystery with you. I'm laboring to share Christ with you that your hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And just the first thing I want you to notice about what he says there is just how comprehensive it is. He's like, it's all the riches. It's full assurance. It is all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All of them are found in Jesus. Jesus is not just one source of wisdom amongst many. And I know he came as a Jewish rabbi, but the idea of Jesus coming as a teacher is not, well, let me pick and choose. I like, I like what he says there. I don't like what he says there. I like what this other rabbi says. I like what this other religion says, this other teacher, this other philosophy. So it's not a smorgasbord of wisdom and knowledge. Paul is asserting if you want any true wisdom and knowledge, it begins and it ends with the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He's saying he is the source of everything you need for life and godliness. And apart from him, these things can't be found. Or in the words of a song that we sing sometimes here together, 
If you have Christ, you have everything. But without him, you have nothing of ultimate worth. Okay, so this, this first point and second, let me just overview and then let's look at a couple specific things. But what Paul's saying is in Christ, you get sufficiency for today and hope for tomorrow. So you get everything that you need for life and for godliness in Christ today and tomorrow and the next day and the next and the next. And hope for this eternal future that you, you can't see we can barely grasp, even when we read scripture, what all it means. But let's begin with this, all sufficiency for today. And you notice he lists like three or four things here in this text. First of all, he says you get encouragement. As you pursue Christ as your ultimate treasure, the first thing you get from Christ is encouragement. And it's a word that, that, that often means just exactly the way we would use it. Like, hey, you seem down today. Let me encourage you. Let me speak a word of affirmation or a word of consolation to kind of lift your spirits. But it means a lot more than that. This Greek word means something like a sympathetic, loving insistence on the truth. And some of you need that kind of encouragement this morning. Because what you're struggling through with, with COVID, with your job, with your finances, with maybe fears or frustrations around politics and culture and just all the stuff going on out there or even stuff going on in here, you would say, I need that other kind of encouragement. And, and the way I picture Jesus in this first point, that the, if the first piece of these riches uh, and it's like opening this treasure box and you start going through it. This guy that found the forest fen treasure and it was filled with like rare coins, gold nuggets, some gemstones, some antiquities. He opens it up and he starts taking something out. Ooh, what's the first one? Encouragement. Christ in you is encouragement. And I picture this kind of like the greatest coach you ever had lives in you. you know, anybody ever have like a really good coach? And what are they doing? Well, usually, first off, that coach has probably played the sport that they're now coaching so they can empathize with you. They know how hard it is. They know where to push you. They know where to let up. And sometimes a good coach is motivating you and equipping you, and you're like, I can't go on. And they know you can go on. You can do a little bit more and they know when to pull back. And I, and I picture where he says, like, I've given you my spirit. The spirit of Christ is in you. That it's like, I've got this motivational voice and power and authority saying, I've been there. Like, Jesus became one of us. He conquered death. He conquered everything. And he's like, let me encourage you. Let me exhort you to continue to do right thing. Let me lovingly insist on the truth in your life. Because you can keep going. That's the first thing, encouragement. Then we, then we go back to this treasure chest again. Jesus, what else do you have? Next one is love. Or he more specifically says being knit together in love or a picture of unity in love. Okay? And I got a question. How, how does being knit together in love help me gain wisdom? Because those seem like two different things. But the, the answer is that it's because knowing Christ is not just like academic head knowledge. It's not just reading a book and being like, oh, okay, I learned another factoid about Jesus. The, the knowledge that we have of Christ is intimate and it's experiential and it's relational. Okay, you ever watch a baby? One of my favorite things about babies is just watching a baby sit there in, I don't know, like a car seat or something or just laying on a blanket. 
And the moment they start to realize, like, whoa, these are my hands. Like, my brain controls what these hands are doing. And whoa, they start playing with their feet and that tastes good or that tastes bad, depending on what I was walking in or crawling in. You know, and babies start discovering, like, I have control over my body. This belongs to me. And as he says here, Jesus Christ is the head of the body. We're members of his body. So we are, we are discovering truth and reality and knowledge and wisdom about Jesus, not just by reading about him, but by living this life in love together and being like, whoa, Christ is in me in this way. Okay, but, but it's more than that because he's talking about being knit together in love, which gives this picture of as I look around in my gospel community group, in my church, in my friendships, I've got other people around me that are trying to pursue the same Jesus together with me. And, and how does that help me discover wisdom? Well, you, you've experienced this with Christian friendships, right? Where you, you are walking with God, you're listening to the Spirit as He leads you, you're reading the Word, you're interpreting and understanding, and then a friend says something, you're like, man, I never thought about it that way before. A new perspective, a new angle that helps you understand and enjoy Christ more. And uh, here I think of that, that famous group at Oxford called the Inklings, and the, famous, the most famous members were C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, and Charles Williams. But it was a bunch of other men and a few women that got together and they talked about all kinds of things, including theology. And one day, eventually, Charles Williams passed away and C.S. Lewis wrote this in The Four Loves. He said, in each of my friends, there's something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call, call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. And he says this, now that Charles, that's Charles Williams, is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's, and that's J.R. Tolkien, I will never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I actually have less of Ronald. And see, when Paul's talking about, one of my prayers for the church is that you be unpacking these treasures of Christ together because far from getting less of Christ by doing it together, you actually get more because in love, you're discovering, you're talking about, you're growing in Christ together. That's the love. Now we go back to the treasure chest. Third piece comes out. He says it's wisdom. Wisdom, not just knowledge again, but wisdom and you all know someone who's, and we call it book smart, but they lack common sense, street smarts, right? They are brilliant. They know everything. They have a photographic memory and they get out in the real world and it just doesn't go well for them in very basic decision-making, right? We need wisdom. We don't just need knowledge. And I see again, Christ says, I'm in you. And Christ in scripture is the personification of wisdom. He's saying true wisdom is not just grasping mentally a bunch of principles or protocols. It is knowing a person, okay? And by the way, we have this tendency when we're after wisdom. When would you use the term wisdom? I'm seeking wisdom from God. About what? Probably about a decision, right? I'm seeking God's will. I need some wisdom. Pray with me for God's wisdom. And that's fine. Like God, God promises wisdom to those who ask him in James. But let's not get bogged down going to scripture and using it like a decoder ring. 
Like, ooh, there's a secret wisdom, there's a secret wisdom and a secret will of God for just me and for just my life. And that, that's what life is all about, is discovering this individualized wisdom thing. Because the reality of what he's inviting you into, the gospel invitation is not go look for your own secret path to the treasure. The invitation here is as broad as know Christ himself. Just know Christ. Just walk with Christ. And the more you know him, again, in a relationship of love, the more wise you are. Now, I want you to just imagine that someone says there is a key that unlocks all true success in life. And if you know this key, you will be successful. And if you don't know this key, no matter how apparently successful you are in a number of different ways, maybe your career, maybe you seem to have a successful marriage, maybe a physical health, you're successful there. But, but if someone could say, without this key, you are not truly successful in any of these ways, then what would that key be worth to you? You're like, wait, so there's a key. I just paid like $19.99 plus shipping and handling for the, for the key to the good life. And that's what success looks like. Like, what would you be willing to pay for that key? Well, Paul's coming to the church and saying, stop listening to all these plausible arguments of all these other religions and all these other philosophies. Here's the key. And by the way, it's free. Christ in you. Christ in you. That's true wisdom. That's the key to the good life, the key to walking in a way that's pleasing to God. Now, just one more of, we're, we're going back to the treasure box. We're pulling out these riches of Christ. There's one more that encourages me because so far, if you're like, okay, yeah, I need to go after wisdom and go after love and yeah, I need all this stuff. Um, how, how do I do this? Number four, the fourth rich Rich, fourth of the riches that you get in Christ is strength. Chapter 1, verse 29, Paul says, For this I, tro- I toil, struggling, literally agonizing with all, and here's the surprising word, his energy that works within me. Paul does not have a like bootstrap Christianity of like, hey, you know the reason that I'm better than you, that I'm smarter than you, that God's using me in all these special ways because I work really hard at it and I'm awesome. I've learned to discipline myself. That's the difference. No, he says the strength that is working in me is actually not my strength. It is the strength of Christ that he has made available to me. And I'll just illustrate it this way. One of the, question, one of the non-theological questions that I'm often asked is, how do I maintain a physique like this? That's, yeah, thank you. That is, that is not a joke. I get that all the time. It's stuff like this, okay? And uh, Optimum Nutrition, if you're out there listening, um, I would be happy to come on as a sponsor. But this is, this is a pre-workout energy drink. And it says right on it, Essential Amino Energy. And what you do is you mix up a couple scoops of this with water and you drink it before your workout and it literally goes to work on the cellular level of your body so that when you get into your workout, you have more of the right kinds of nutrients to draw upon so you can lift heavier, you can, you can work out a little bit longer and it helps you stay or get in shape, okay? So this is just an illustration of what I think Paul is saying Christ makes available to you. That he's not just an outside source came saying, I'll come along and I'll, I'll spot you as you're trying to lift that heavy weight. But he's like, take me in, get me in you, let me go to work on the interior of your life and then get to work. And by the way, both of those things are important because there's two ways this doesn't work. 
The first way this doesn't work is I don't take it and I just go work out. Just, just drink plain water. That's good. That's better than nothing. But if I don't take this, if I don't get it in me, it does not provide energy in the midst of a workout because I didn't get it in me. The other way this doesn't work is if I take it and I think, sweet, I took the energy, I took the power, and I go take a nap. The way this works is that you get it in you and then you go work out. And I love this balance that Paul presents here is he's like, look, I am willing to work my tail off to make Christ known. But who is it really that's working in me? It's Jesus. It's his power. So I'm able to do so much more because he's with me and he's for me. So let's go, okay? So those four things, um, and just to kind of summarize those, he says, chapter 1, verse 27, again, this, this, this mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory, the other piece of this. So, so everything essential for today, also hope for tomorrow, and this hope in Christ is not like a wishful thinking pie in the sky, and you can think of some things that you're hoping for right now. I hope that COVID goes away. I hope that life goes back to normal. I hope that I get a job interview. I hope that I get married someday. I hope that I have kids. I hope that you hope all kinds of things. But you would use the word hope differently in different contexts to mean like, ah, this is a dream. It'd be nice. Do I think that's going to happen? No. Or you may say, uh, you know, it is just kind of a pie in the sky thing, but I hope. And he's saying here, biblical hope is a confident expectation. And the guarantee of this future glory, notice this, the guarantee of the future glory is not simply the promises of God as sure and as accurate and as true as those are, he says the ultimate deposit of this hope is actually the person of God. So just just imagine someone comes to you and says, hey, for your high school graduation, I'm gonna give you an all expenses paid trip anywhere you want in the world, but there's a catch. You gotta do all your planning, you pay for it, just keep some receipts and trust me to reimburse you. But in the end, the net will be an all-expenses-paid trip. Versus scenario two, the person who's making that promise is your dad. And your dad says, and I'm going to be here with you as you go through high school. And I'm going to help you plan the trip of a lifetime. And by the way, here's my credit card, and I'm going to pay for it as we go along. Which of those two vacations would you put more actual confident expectation was actually going to happen? The one where someone just makes a promise and leaves? which is a lot of people's view of God, right? Jesus says, hey, I'll save you someday. I'll come back for you. Oh, great, I can live my life however I want, and someday he'll come back for me. And maybe some of you treat the Christian life that way. That's not the Bible. The Bible is more like the second one. It's like your father. He's like, I'm, I'm not going anywhere. I'm with you. I'm in you. I'm for you. What is your guarantee that I'll give you everything in the future that you need? Well, I'm with you, okay? So... Let me just summarize both of those. Chapter 1, verse 28. Paul says, my aim is to present everyone mature in Christ. And he's saying, if you go after Christ as your treasure, you go after the Messiah as your ultimate treasure in life, the end result will be maturity, which is a word that means perfect or complete. Now, in the Hebrew mind, the word perfect didn't mean like morally perfect without all flaws. What it meant is something that's fulfilling its designed purpose. And here's what Paul's saying. If you get Christ plus nothing, you will fulfill the designed purpose for your life. And you'll have all of these things in him. Now, how do you respond? Final point. 
just take a moment or two. The response to this, 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 this mystery, I give you an emotional response that's in this text and also a vocational response that's in this text. First of all, I'm just saying, if I really believe this, if I really believe there's this treasure and I'm not going to lose my life finding it, except in the sense that like, I, I need to let go of my self-made identity, but it's not going to kill me to find Jesus. And in Jesus, I'm going to open this up, and he is the treasure. And in him, I find all wisdom, all knowledge, all power, all love, all grace. And we could go on and on. What would that do for you if you believed Christ is that valuable? He's that worthy of everything. And I say, first of all, the emotional response is you would rejoice. And it, this section of scripture is actually, it's a chiasm. Um, it's, it's parallel in reverse. There's A, B, C, then C prime, B prime, A prime. And at the beginning of the end of this note that Paul is writing, you see rejoicing. So this is a theme of this section, this particular section. He's like, this is not just about gaining knowledge or gaining wisdom or gaining the good life. This is about you gaining joy. This is about me gaining joy. And you notice that he says, I'm rejoicing even in the midst of suffering and affliction and toil and agonizomai, which you can hear the word agony in that. In the midst of agony, I'm able to rejoice. Yes, life is hard work. It's full of sacrifices and setbacks and, and struggles. But some, what some of us have done is we've put so much focus on the setbacks and the struggle and the pain and the affliction, we don't have joy. And what Paul is doing here is a very different model where he says, I acknowledge the pain, I acknowledge how hard it is, but my friends, the focus is Jesus. The focus is Christ, and that's why I have joy, because I know what kind of God I'm getting. And by the way, in context, what kind of God are you getting? We looked at this last week, going back to verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. He is the sustainer of every atom in the universe. He gave his own life. He shed his own blood to reconcile us to the Father by grace so that we can have a right relationship with God, okay? If I know that he is my treasure and I get him, rejoice. And then a vocational response is to reveal. And this, again, is like the next ring kind of inside of rejoicing. Paul's talking a lot about warning and teaching and proclaiming and sharing and encouraging because he's saying, if I really believe that Jesus is life and godliness. He's this inexhaustible treasure. If you have him, you have everything. If you don't have him, you have nothing. If you believe that, other than rejoicing for yourself because you have him, what else would you do? Wouldn't you share this treasure with everyone? I mean, it's like the, the, the little boy's meal of like the bread and the fish, and Jesus keeps taking more and more. And you're like, well, how is he feeding all these people with Five loaves and two fish. It just keeps coming and coming. Well, that's, that's what Christ does with riches. Is he can keep giving and giving and giving and it doesn't ever run out. It doesn't ever diminish in your life by sharing it. It actually increases your joy by sharing it. And this is Paul's perspective. I've got a treasure that is so valuable that rejoices my own personal heart so greatly. What is my vocation? What is my calling in life no matter what else I'm doing as an artist or an attorney or a doctor or a stay-at-home mom or whatever it is that you do? My vocation is to reveal Christ and don't let it stay a secret. Don't let it stay a mystery. Just say, hey, can I tell you a secret? Um, here it is, Jesus, Christ in you, the hope of glory, okay? So... Here's your theme. 
Paul's saying, pursue Jesus, the Messiah, as your ultimate treasure. We'll unpack this week. What, what do I treasure by default? How would I pursue Jesus as the ultimate treasure instead? And how would I live so that others could come to enjoy the riches of his grace with me? Let's pray.